everybody. Welcome back to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. And we're at the series finale of Confronting Kemper. Yes, we are, Courtney. You forgot to introduce yourself. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. <laughs> Courtney's just so excited to get this I feel like it cluster been, over. I've forgotten how to podcast. It's because we took a week off. It was only a week. But I feel like it's been forever. Because in that week, it was a long week. week. <laughs> so we had a stomach virus running through the house. Then we had Thanksgiving. We had Thanksgiving. I was hell bent on hosting yes. like our family here you spent for like Thanksgiving. Two so two days the day before I, with like Lysol and bleach all. When over I everything. tell you that I bleached the walls, <laughs> She's not I lying. bleached the walls. She's not lying. <laughs> You'd walk through the house and go. From the fumes. <laughs> and I think I think everybody after Thanksgiving slept for the day or just laid oh on the God. couch and watched TV. I slept for like forever. I was exhausted. No one did anything on Friday. And then we went to the Renaissance Festival. That was super fun. All Everyone was Saturday. so tired, but it everybody was, was super exhausted. fun. We were there for like eight hours? No. Yeah, really? we, got, we got there like noon and we got home at like, oh, we, by the time we left and got back, it was eight hours. Yeah, it was perfect. It's it was only about chilly, an hour away. But it was super fun. So that was, we never get, you know, all the kids out to do something together. Yeah, that was for you. We did that, that for your late birthday. That's what you want to do for, with everybody. It was fun. Yeah, it was super fun. And what else did we do? Thanksgiving. I guess that's about it. Uh, we've had this, I've been off all week this week, so we've just Yeah, been we've had a cool week together. It's weird. Relaxing. And here we are. Been back knocking again. out all those damn side projects that I've been planning to do for six months that He's I haven't touched. Taking care of his honey-do list. <laughs> that she started in like <laughs> 2021 that I haven't gotten to. You always say there's no need to ask me every six months. Hey, I'll I took care to of it most of them. Get to it. <laughs> I'm getting it done. Whatever. <laughs> Just say it. Every six months, you don't have to remind me. Oh my gosh. But thank y'all. Y'all have been so nice when I told y'all that we were taking the week off earlier in the week because we had sickness hit us early in the week before Thanksgiving. And that's when I planned on, you know, getting everything done that's for this episode. You all your, your research yeah, and writing yeah, done is like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then this hit. Yeah. The little sh- one got the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. stomach virus. And it's like, oh my God, there's just no way. Yeah, I can't do it all. <laughs> you got, we have four kids in the house. And when the little one has a stomach virus, we're doing everything we can to keep that shit away from the other five people in the house. But it was so amazing how many like well wishes we got. There oh yeah, it's super. We got a super supportive. People checking on us and we are fine. I will tell you that it was the weird. I think a lot of people are experiencing things like this. So the little one had a stomach virus and you know how contagious those are. Mm-hmm. Like you're just going to get it. There's just I'm no stopping it. I'm still not convinced it. it was a stomach virus. thinking it was like a flu. Well then the next, like, I think it was like two days after she had recovered Everybody got a cold, Head like colds. a mystery cold Head and colds cough. colds and congestion and cough. It's like, what is this? That's why I think it was a flu and it just hit her stomach. Yeah, maybe. I and don't it know. hit everybody else different because it's, but you're right. Everybody, this, it's Texas. Yeah. You know, if you've never been to Texas in November, it goes from 80 to 40. Yeah, one day it's and like then 80. 70 the next day and then it's 52 the next day. Like the weather is just so fucked up here. It's so messed up. And yeah, we're surprised that, you know, we're all sick. Sickness down. runs rampant in November, December around here. Anyways. We're, we were through the thick of it. Let's hope. I don't want to jinx it. I don't have any wood to knock on. But. Yeah, don't, don't do that. So, you ready for a quick recap, Patrick? I am, but I did want to bring out, like, you know, we love our, like you said, we are a supportive fan base, you know, our fellow podcasters and everything. 
We got a first negative review on Apple. It's not our first negative. We on have Apple. on Apple. Okay, yeah. If, we got a one star review. We got a one star review. Which this is person. whatever. You know what? You're not going to get all five stars, all four stars, or whatever. You can't appeal to everyone. This one no, just cracked I me up because they were they basically told us we were parrots and that we basically follow parrots, other like, podcast <laughs> other podcasts to get our content, uh, which I thought was hilarious because there's still several podcasts that we have done that have not been covered by another person or a podcast at all. Yet we are parrots. Look, we can't appeal to everybody. We know that. We're not trying to. Like We have our core things that we're trying to do. And we're just really trying to cover the most evil people that ever walked the earth, right? Yeah. Some are going to be super famous, like Ed Kemper. Some are going to be very little people are going to know about the Briley Brothers. Or yeah, exactly. Jasmine Richardson. Or the gorilla killer. And if we don't appeal to you, you know, you could just move on. I love criticism, especially when it's stuff that I can work on and better myself, you know? Yeah, when it's change your whole format. I'm but sorry. when it's change your whole format, it's like, but there are so many, and we're not dogging on this person. Not I at all. I appreciate that, the comments. I understand that this person probably had a really rough day. And so, no, we did not take it personally. But we can't do much about the format. And there are just so many... I mean, get in touch with us and we have recommendations. We have, you know, friends that do very little known cases. And Missing persons. We yeah, have friends absolutely. That do, hey, is it, a, is it a murder or is it a movie? Like, I mean, yeah. what do you, what's your, you know, just ask. Hit absolutely. us up. We can always recommend you somebody else with a different format if we're not one for you. And we're not going to be the one for everybody. Oh, for sure. We're not yeah. trying to And be. no, and definitely keep the critiques and criticism coming. It just has to be something, you know, I can change. It can't be like your voice sucks. I, mean, I can't help that. Feel free, feel free to leave hate <laughs> Well, I mean, comments. you can say that. Don't just bother us, but whatever. there's nothing we can do about it, right? Like, if you don't like my voice, Patrick, you're a dumbass. Yeah, I was born this way. I'm sorry. <laughs> Like, can't do much about I, I it. I can't help how much of a dumbass I am and the dumb shit that comes out of my mouth. Everybody's allowed to have an opinion and we love you for but it. But if you say, hey, maybe here's a case or here's a country. Oh, sure. With, there's yeah. a whole bunch of stuff like, you know, obviously you got countries like Russia and some of the China and these massive yeah. horrible people. Yeah. We can, we can do that. Like huge cases over there. You want to do the Rustov Ripper from Russia? We're down. Okay. We, I whatever. Mean, let's go. Let us know. But let's go. Yeah, don't, don't, don't say you don't like my hair color. <laughs> on the fucking podcast because one, I don't know how you know it and two, can't help it. Can't help Sorry. It. It's just me. <laughs> it's just how the fuck I was born. I don't Do you know. feel better getting that off your chest? No, I'm just having fun with it. Oh, okay. Like it didn't bother me. It still doesn't bother me. You're going to get, you know, as you know, a podcast grows or whatever you do, Instagram, oh, author, yeah. movie star, musician, whatever you do in life, people are going to, the bigger you get, you're going to get more people that don't like what you do. My favorite I guess you could call it a hate comment. I just laughed about it. My favorite one was talking about how um, they were asking me to hire them um, to help me to help Courtney pronounce words correctly. <laughs> First of all, I am not paying that much money. Touche. <laughs> Fair I am enough. Not paying that much money. I butcher the English language. Fair enough. Can't even get mad at Although that. Although it's not a bad idea because I try to correct you and you want to stab me with your eyeballs. Like it's. <laughs> That's, but that's something I can work on, and I try. I try. <laughs> you, do, you do try. It's, it's adorable. <laughs> okay, let's get to it. Yeah, let's we're, move on before we do this for two hours. Yeah, we'll banter back and forth Let's for just fucking hours. get rid of Ed Kemper, please, for the love of all things. Ed Kemper, we're not allowed to say his name ever again. <laughs> After this? No. After this. So in episode two, so last episode, we detailed all of Ed's horrific crimes. Right. So if you haven't yet listened to that episode, make sure 
to do so and then meet us back here. So all of this makes sense. Yeah, because this is, this is part three. So if you missed that one. The finale. Or part one even. So part one, Courtney went into detail about, you know, Ed's childhood, Ed growing up, uh, and Ed's first, actual, his first crimes. Mm-hmm. And then the second episode we covered was the true co-ed killer. Like how he got his name, what he was doing, all the crimes he was committing at that time. So if you don't. And we got to know the victims. If you don't know Ed Kemper, if you don't know the background on him, you're going to be lost as shit. Especially with this episode. (laughs) In this episode. Like you're going to be confused. So I would highly recommend at least the second one. So at least you know what he did. uh, Because a lot of what he did comes into this play, this this part of the episode, this part of the The series. Thank you. You're welcome. I can't English now. But up, Deb, Deb, what's up, Doc? Really? So we Bug, ended the last episode. Me, okay. We ended the last episode just after Ed killed his abusive mother, mm-hmm. um, Clarnell, who he was living with at the time, and then he defiled and beheaded her. Darts with her head. Sorry, that one sticks with me because it's just so weird. And then did the same thing to her best friend Sally. It was Sarah, also known as Sally um, Hallett. I just. It always sticks with my head. That the darts. He puts her head yeah. on the shelf, yells at it for an hour, and then plays darts with it. Wow, you remember that. Um, yeah. How can you How not? can you forget, right? So, fortunately, these would be the last two murders that Ed Kemper committed because, um, thankfully, because he knew that since there were two dead bodies in the house where he lived at with his mom. He's. Yeah, that the cops would, of course, you know, tie it back to him eventually. So (laughs) it's not hard. There's three people that live there, and he's the one missing. Mm. So he decided to make a run for it, and that's where we left off. Okay, so you ready for this? Yeah, let's do this. Without further ado, let's begin the final episode of Confronting Kemper. So Ed Kemper murdered his mom and his mom's best friend, Sally Hallett, stuffed their mutilated bodies in a closet. And he figured that he would make an attempt at escape. So he stole Sally's keys and wallet and loaded her car with an arsenal. Guns, ammo, swords, etc. And he set off destination unknown. He has, swords. He has no plan whatsoever. I got guns and ammo. And if everything goes bad, I got fucking swords. Let's exactly. do this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's a big ass dude with a sword. That's kind of scary. He's actually. not going to need one, is he? So Ed uh, drove as far as Reno, Nevada, where he stopped at a car rental place and rented a huge green Chevy Impala. He has a thing for really big cars. He's a big dude. Yeah, he's a big dude. He's not about to get like a Ford Fiesta and fit in it. But he's not going to get a truck. He just likes these big like boat cars. Somehow it went unnoticed as Ed transferred his three guns and over 200 rounds of ammo from Sally's car to the new rental in the parking lot of a gas station, just a public gas station. No one saw. Well, you don't know if anybody was there. He might have waited until there was no one in the parking lot. Could have. Then he no CCTV in the 70s. Then he went inside the gas station and bought a bunch of caffeine pills, you know, the little ones that they sell next to the... <laughs> I'm all hopped up on Mountain Dew. Yeah. <laughs> the yellow jackets. The or yellow the jackets. <laughs> so he bought a bunch of caffeine pills and downed them before abandoning, just leaving Sally's car at the gas station. And, we can't drive two cars. Yeah, and taking off in his rental. So Ed drove about 18 hours straight without stopping before... He was pulled over for speeding in Colorado. I bet. So he's in Colorado. And somehow he was let off with a warning, despite 
driving a very heavily armed vehicle. It's very typical of Ed. He apparently knows exactly how to work cops. Well, if you remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, we saw after he killed Marianne Pesh and um, Anita Lucheza, Ed was pulled over for a broken taillight when he literally had both of their bodies in the trunk of his car. Not only that, but the back seat was like covered in blood. He yeah. was covered in blood. The yeah. car was covered in He's blood. He's that just good. But he was also, if you remember, he also, I mean, you obviously remember, he spent his time with hanging people, out. Sorry. Oh, yeah, the, drinking the, with cops. Drinking with yeah. cops. So he knew what they looked for. He knew how they talked. He knew how to talk to them. And he's also, you know, those that don't know about Ed Kemper, he's a very charismatic dude. Like, yeah, he comes off as a jolly green giant yeah, kind he of comes doofy. Off as a giant and gentle or gentle giant. Giant gentle. Giant. <laughs> fuck English today. A gentle giant. He comes off that way, like he comes yeah. off harmless, like this big doof, like you said. Yeah, he does. It's it's insane, but he's very good at what he does. When I said that earlier, what I meant was he's very good at charming men. He seeks men men's approval. It's weird, and we're gonna see more of that here later on. Can't wait to get to it because I caught that. And it's something that's not usually spoken about. So despite being let off with a warning, Ed was hopped up on caffeine pills and he was growing increasingly just paranoid. Oh, yeah. So much so that he decided to stop in Pueblo, Colorado and just give up the ghost and turn himself in. He just couldn't run anymore. Which is ironic because it's like literally five miles away from Colorado Supermax. Oh, yeah. Colorado Supermax is right outside Pueblo. That's right. That's some place you always talk. It wasn't um, Ted Bundy there. Ted Bundy. Yeah. They were like cellmates there. And this is where it gets nuts to me. <laughs> it's April 24th, 1973. So obviously this is before cell phones. So Ed pulled over 4 a.m. and walked into a phone booth on the side of the road. And he decided to call his drinking buddies, the cops, over at uh, the Santa Cruz Police Department where he's from. Is it called like the jury room or something like that? Yeah, that's where he used to drink. He was thinking, okay, I'll confess to being the co-ed killer and they'll send someone over to pick me up. Fairly straightforward. How hard can this be? Exactly. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) It got very difficult. I'm sure it did. (laughs) So Ed told the officer that answered, the officer in Santa Cruz, he was like, okay, I killed my mother and her friend and I killed those college girls. I killed six of them. I can show you where I hid their bodies. He even went as far as to say, I am the chopper, the butcher, and the co-ed killer. All of the names given to the killer by the local media outlets at the time. Right. Well, the officer on the other end of the line thought it was a prank call. Yeah, no one, no, no <laughs> this dude's not going to call you yeah. like, I'm the dude that killed X, Y, and Z. Like, right, it's exactly. Me. Okay, whatever, buddy. And when Ed could tell that he didn't believe him, the officer asked Ed to call back later when the next shift was in. He was like, I, I, I can't help you. Maybe the guy who comes in after me, he well, can. This that, is the graveyard shift, right? Yeah, I was about to say, that kind of makes sense. You get that phone call at 3 a.m. You're like, all right, drunk guy, walk, walk it off. That's what he thought. He thought. Call in the morning when we can figure out that you're probably sober. Well, Ed actually recognized the cop on the other end of the line. His name happened to be Andy, and they had drank together back at the jury room, like you mentioned, Pat, the bar. Mm-hmm. So Ed said, Andy, I want to talk to Lieutenant Charles Scherer. And that was who was in charge of the co-ed murder investigation. And Ed knew that. Yeah. So Andy advised Ed. He's like, okay, this is Ed. He said, okay, well, Scherer won't be in until 9 a.m. And you need to call back then. Do you know that Ed actually hung up and waited at the exact same spot until 9 a.m.? This is 4 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, That's he was like, five hours. He was like, fuck it, I'm done. 
Yeah, he was just I'm old, done. Like, I'm not just done. I'm just done running. I'm going to sit here and wait till it's time to be, I'm done. That's five hours of just waiting to turn himself in. He probably took a nap. Oh my gosh. Probably tired. Can you imagine how like that Andy guy, how like the talking to that he must have gotten Bro, <laughs> later on? <laughs> that dude would be roasted nonstop. Like if I was <laughs> working with later. him. Every time, like every time the phone ring, I'd be like, "Hey, Andy, it's probably the Zodiac. You might want to call him and call back later. It might oh be Ted Bundy. Have him call tomorrow." Like, I wonder if Andy still had a job after all. <laughs> I'm sure he did because the circumstances are like no one's gonna call and say, you know, this is the '70s. Yeah, serial killers are rampant in California. None of them are calling and saying, "Hey, I'm so and so. Come get me." Yeah, exactly. So they're like, he probably didn't get in that much trouble, but I'm just he got. I'm telling you, he got. Roast, reprimanded it to some degree. I don't even probably, he probably didn't get reprimanded. Cause like I said, that's so out of the blue. Like that that's just never happened. You're going to believe. And you're not going to believe this. Speaking of what you're going to believe in that. When he was called, when Ed called back at nine, the cop that answered the phone hung up on him because they thought it was just big Ed making a prank call. In fact, he would be hung up on a second time before he was finally believed. And he wasn't actually even initially believed it like, took Ed, well, it took Ed requesting an officer named Sergeant Alufi to basically do a well check on Ed's mother at their home. He was like, hey, okay, you don't believe me? Go do- get, Go to the house. <laughs> get uh, Alufi to go and do a well check. And the reason um, he asked for Alufi to do this well check is because uh, that happened to be the officer that came to- uh, Ed and Clarnell's house in confisc- confiscated Ed's 44 caliber. Mm-hmm. Remember yeah. when we were speculating that Clarnell maybe filed a complaint against him? Right, 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 right. Yeah. And so he's like, okay, well, they had some issues, so I'll go and check. Well, when he went and checked, he found yeah. a crime scene. Yeah. Horrible crime scene. So the horrifying crime scene back at Ed's mom's house was discovered and Pueblo police were alerted to go and get Ed Kemper and where he was at the pit <laughs> Can you just imagine this whole thing playing out? Like, no. They're like, God, Ed won't stop calling. Someone just go fucking check on the house. He wants him to yeah, check on. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden it's like, holy Oh my shit. God. Holy shit. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> and they're focused on what the co-ed killers and they're like, is he really, could he be the co-ed killer? <gasps> Even if he's not, we have like a big two beheaded people yeah. violently murdered. Jeez. And make no mistake, Ed was patiently waiting to be picked up. He's just chilling. When Pueblo officer David Martinez arrived at the phone booth in Pueblo where Ed had called from, he spotted Ed still inside the phone booth. Officer Martinez later stated, quote, he was still in the fo- on the phone talking to Santa Cruz when I came up. So he was on the line with the Santa Cruz Police Department. And then Officer Martinez said, when I told him to move outside, he asked, okay, what do I do with the phone? I told him to drop it. So before Ed dropped the payphone receiver, he informed the Santa Cruz officer on the other end of the line that somebody had arrived and had a gun on him. So he's being like super careful and covering all of his bases, I guess. So Ed stepped outside of the phone booth, Pat, and he had his hands raised. He placed both of his hands on top of the phone booth, Officer Martinez said. The phone, think about that. That's how tall this guy is. Yeah, I know. He, <laughs> he's as big as the phone booth. <laughs> and Officer uh, Martinez was like, what the? <gasps> he was like, up. God. Back up. Back up. Back. Well, funny you should say that. 
Officer Martinez just sat and hung out with Ed for several minutes because it took so long for any backup to arrive. He was like, guys, ETA, <laughs> like, where are you? Dude's seven feet tall and 300 pounds and just murdered nine people. <laughs> um, help. That poor guy. Oh my gosh. You would think the whole world, well, in my mind, the whole world would stop spinning for the opportunity to arrest a suspected serial killer, but- they're Everyone really is probably, just taking their damn time. But I think they're really confused at this point. They are. Like, is this they real are. or not? And then, you know what I mean? But hey, Ed Kemper was now in custody and his killing days were over. So that's one good thing. I, I, Step I in the think, right direction. Like, I want to think in my mind, because Ed was just ready to give up, I want to think that like, I see him and the officer like literally just kind of hanging out, smoking they cigarettes. Just they were just hanging chatting. out, talking. Well, I'll tell you what I think. Um, I think that because Ed killed his mother, he was done. His mother was, I'm not going to say she was the reason he killed all these women, but she She absolutely was the driving force because, you know, as soon as he killed his mother, he was done. He even said after the last girl that he killed, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to have to kill my mom. Well, he said when he was eight, he played the first one. When I was eight years old, I knew I was going to kill my mother. Yeah. I, I really think that once that happened, he was just... And then once he killed her, not only that, he also knows that one he can't get away from. Right. Like, he knows that when they find his mom, it's he's done. So he's just like, oh, right. I've killed her. My reason for murdering everybody else is gone. Mm-hmm. I'm and, I, and I'm caught at some point now, so I'll just chalk it up. Yep. So Ed was, of course, taken back to the station in Pueblo to wait for his ride to Santa Cruz to arrive. That's going to be a fun ride. <laughs> but while he was there... He must have still been hopped up on caffeine pills or something because he confessed and blabbered about his crimes to literally anyone who would listen to include the poor janitor at the police station. Like, bro, you- I'm just trying to mop the fucking floor. Yeah, that's what I said. Can you imagine just like going into work to clean the police station and some random guy is like, hey, I like to cut the heads off people. He'd be like, what? Can I go clean up the duty in the bathroom? Oh it's all over God. the place. Like, that's, that's all I'm trying to do here. I don't want to hear about this shit. Anyways, the Santa Cruz um, DA, Peter Chang, and a trio of detectives, including Detective Alufi, Mickey Alufi, who uh, discovered the crime scene. Yeah. At Ed's mom's home. They all arrived together in Colorado to bring Kemper back home to face charges. And you won't believe, Pat, how they got back to Santa Cruz, California from Pueblo, Colorado. How'd they do that? (laughs) They drove there in Sally Hallett's stolen car altogether that Kemper abandoned at the gas station when he rented the Impala. So they returned diligently the Impala to the rental place. And then went, Ed showed him where Sally's car was, and they just drove that back home. Oh. I mean, they needed it for evidence, right? Sure. Is that a thing? No, you tow it. <laughs> uh, I don't, I mean, great question. You're, you were the cop. I was wondering if you would be like, hey, that's a thing. You no, know? you tow it because you're t- contaminating the evidence. You're contaminating a crime scene. You're putting so extra bodies just, that don't need to be there. Just to clarify for our friends out in podcast land, the DA and the detectives drove with a deranged serial killer handcuffed in the back seat all the way back to California in a murdered woman's car together. <laughs> yeah. It's it sounds weird. I mean, that's just weird. me. It sounds weird. I know it was different times, but I, I don't I don't know what to say about that. Well, I mean, they got it worked. I mean, I yeah, guess. obviously, but obviously different times. Right nowadays that evidence would not be used. Half that crap would be it could be considered 
unlawful detainment because you're not in a police vehicle. You're in a random person's car. That's crazy. It's just insane. Well, speaking of processing cars for evidence, while Ed and his travel companions were on the road, uh, investigators back in Santa Cruz impounded Ed's yellow Ford Galaxy at his mother's house. And um, that was stored at or located at his mother's house. They impounded it. And they found hella evidence. It was the murder car. They yeah. Found, yeah, they found blood everywhere, as well as a thirty caliber ammo clip and long human hair and remnants of Ed's kill kit still in the trunk. And he was, by all accounts, a slob of a human. He was not like a Dexter neat and tidy serial killer. Right. He was disgusting. He was so gross. Mm. Like he barely cleaned up the blood. I mean, it was just nasty. They had descriptions of it in a few of the books I read. And I was, I was like, like, Willie Pinkston. Oh, he would eat in there and just what's like, it, or leave what's it. What's it, Willie Pink- Pickton. Pickton. Yeah. Willie Pickton. Just leave his food and shit in the car. Oh, God, he's so gross. He just looks gross, I think. <laughs> looks like he would smell funny, you know? If you're listening to this, I'm sorry, Ed. I'm he's not. still alive. I just don't want him to send anyone after me. <laughs> From where? Prison? And, <laughs> I mean, I've heard of crazier things happening. I guess. Like traveling in a murdered woman's car with two cops and a DA. (laughs) The cops bringing you back in the murdered woman's car, yeah. It's insane. Okay, so anyways, Ed traveled with his new friends from Pueblo to Santa Cruz, and that's quite a drive. So at night, they, of course, couldn't, you know, do it, you know, all in, in one day. So they would stop off at accommodating local police departments along the way and let Ed sleep in jail cells, which is, I mean... Safest way to do it, I guess. Go there, drop them off. Go get a hotel. Get a hotel across the street, sleep it off, take shifts, watch an Ed. Mm -hmm. But all in all, Ed gave zero sign that he ever wanted to escape or do anything crazy. He had his chance, obviously. (laughs) In fact, the detectives would later recall how during one of their many rest stops, this is so crazy, Pat, two attractive women walked past the car when Ed was inside and Ed looked at them through the window and then violently started vomiting. The detectives were like, you good? You good, bro? And Ed explained to them that was just his response to seeing beautiful women. He just does that sometimes. Oh. <laughs> totally normal. Yeah, it's 100% straight. Very does. normal. I don't have much to say about that. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't even have anything to speculate. I don't even have some dumbass <laughs> comment to make. It's just weird. So once back in Santa Cruz, Ed talked and talked, and he just never shut up. The author of the book, uh, Ed Kemper by uh, Derry Matera, stated that that's fairly common in serial killers, however, because after a lifetime of hiding and having to act, quote, normal, they have a lot to get off their chest. So it makes sense. Well, they're finally, like, able to be seen for what they are, and they're going to want the stage, and you know? You know? But most of them are narcissists, like we've talked about. I mean, confession killer. I mean, they're just going to sit there and be like, I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. To your right. point, to your point, they've been living a secret life. Right. Now their life is out in the open. And they're like, hey, who wants to know about it? Like, exactly. And he was an open book. He was willing to admit to his crimes in vivid detail. And most importantly, he was willing to take investigators on a six-hour tour, six hours of his killing and dumping grounds. To show him where everything was, what was left. It reminds me, Pat, of the butcher baker, Robert Hansen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they love showing off, these serial killers love showing off where they dispose of their, quote, girls. Because they feel they've returned to those places 
to visit them and they feel connected it, yeah. to them. And Bundy did it. Yeah. Hanson, to your point, did it. He's doing it. And they memorize these locations because they, yeah, they, they go there over and over again. It's like they're, didn't he say in the last episode, Ed Kemper, that he was, he felt like some of them were his wives or something. It's just so messed up. It was his uh, lovers. The first one, especially the first one he killed. Yeah. Not the second one because it was the first one because that was his first. And then kill. Cynthia we su- Shaw. We, we we suggested because it was his first kill, like mm-hmm. he drew a connection to her, like yeah, maybe they would have been great friends because he yeah he sat there talking about how they would have been like great friends and lovers or boyfriend girl. I wish I would have gotten to know her yeah, more I wish before I, I known killed her because we would have gotten along. Jesus, the fuck. Yeah, I just so must like you can't even wrap your head around it. And it was well. Go- That's a good thing, by the way. Yeah, it's a good thing. <laughs> that means you're not a depraved psychopath killer. I I did find it interesting to note that Ed dumped the bodies of all of his victims within a 20 mile radius of his home. He doesn't have to go far. Yeah. So he, but he hunted far away. Smart. Right. right? And then he brought them closer to home. Truly the opposite. So he could visit them. But it's truly the opposite of Hanson who hunted. Very much so. He also took them all into a same area. They yeah. were just in different places in the same area. And that was the tundra, so nobody But no could. one else would go out there. He knew yeah. where they all were. He could visit as many as he wanted to. Unfortunately, not one one of Ed's young victims was discovered fully intact. We know that. Well, no, you leave them in the if, woods long enough. Yeah, if they were discovered at all. Bears, wolves, coyotes, hyenas. Not hyenas. There's no hyenas in California. You never know. <laughs> I mean, Those damn hyenas in California. I'm having some mental issues tonight, apparently. It's, it's been... <laughs> It's been a two weeks, a fortnight. It's yeah. been a fortnight <laughs> and not the game. And you actually use that correctly, which is Thank impressive. You. Well, because fortnight is two weeks. I know. Clearly. Duh. You clearly know. I have this. two fortnight players in the house, so I know fortnight's two weeks. Who's, and I watch Game of Thrones. Duh. the second fortnight? You used to. Oh, yeah, a little bit. Anyways, I digress. So, as reported by Hugh Stevens of Inside Detective, they were able to unearth the partial remains of Marianne Pesch off of Summit Road, a pelvis bone thought to belong to Anita Lucheza near Loma Prieta, and an unidentified arm wrapped in a green plastic bag off of Rodeo Gulch Road. Remember, they didn't have DNA back then, so they couldn't determine. They're just speculating based off of what he says at this point. They found the rib cage thought to belong thought to belong to uh, Aiko Ku. Mm-hmm. She was fifteen, mm-hmm. and they found that in a shallow she grave. Was a one. Yeah, that was the worst that in my opinion. Awful. All of them were horrible, but um, they found her rib cage in a shallow uh, grave near Two Bar Road in Boulder Creek, and they found some of Cynthia Shaw's personal items near a cliff in an unincorporated part of Santa Cruz. And this is going to piss you off because this made me irate. I think it's also bullshit. Ed claimed to not even know the names of all of his victims, if any of them, despite the fact that, remember, he stole all of their IDs. He knew every one of their names. He knew every, he knew every his girls. one of their names. He fell in love with a few of them. Yeah. He knew all of their names. Maybe one he didn't know you for whatever. You lying sack of shit. Maybe one of his last ones because he was more rage killing or more less premeditated with it at that point. You know what I mean? He was more mm-hmm. like grab and go. It sounds horrible, but that's what he was doing. His last one or two, he just literally grabbed them and just took them. He may but not why be so transparent and honest to some degree? And then, I mean, honest and transparent to the point that it shocks and makes you want to vomit, you know? And then- 
lie about other things. So menial is this. Like, I didn't know their names. That just, that does nothing. Because he can't lie. He's not going to lie about the big shit, but he can lie about, he's been lying his whole life. I just don't know what he gets out of it. It's just so stupid. I, I think it's habit. I don't know if he maybe. gets something out of it. Maybe. Or maybe that's, the other thing is. Pathological liar. Maybe, no. Well, he could be a pathological liar. We don't know. But maybe that's how he keeps something for himself. Maybe. He gives everything to the cops. That's, he tells the whole story. But to him, he's like, I didn't know their name. Israel so he Keys. Keeps, he did that. He keeps just something that mm-hmm. only he knows if he knew that or not. So that's his thing. That's what he gets to keep. You remember Israel Keys? Yeah. That's what it, he wouldn't say certain things because that he kept, was. He even said, I kept certain to keep, things to myself. Yeah. It, was, it was for me to know. But Ed would literally not stop talking about other things. In fact, I believe that he was seeking to gain, like I said earlier, he was seeking to gain the approval of investigators. So that's why he kept offering up so much information to an extent. Thank you so much for helping us with the way you are. Exactly. Great help. And you know, they're playing into it. Like, yes, please keep talking it. You're doing so good. Keep going, buddy. That's the oldest trick in the book. He even, get this, this is nuts. He even urged, Ed urged the investigators to give him a lie detector test, which he, of course, passed. But that was wholly unnecessary since. I'm really, I want you guys to believe me. I want you yeah, to be so Yeah, he just wanted approval or I don't know. It, it, it makes sense. He's trying to help them out so that he looks, so Helpful. he fits in with them. Yeah, he's, always maybe. Been, he's always tried to fit in with them. He want, Remember, he wanted to be a cop. I think that dream is gone, buddy. I, I know, but I'm, what I'm saying <laughs> is he's, he wanted to be a cop. He couldn't. He was doing this other stuff. Yeah. But he's trying to fit in with them is what he's trying to do. So that makes perfect sense that he's seeking their approval right here by doing whatever he can. So Ed showed him the dumping grounds in a 20-mile radius from within a 20-mile radius around right. his home. Right. And then he showed them all of his dumping grounds in his home. What I mean by that is um, if you remember, he disposed of at least one part of one victim from the last episode yep. in his in the courtyard of his mother's, like yep. right outside of his mother's duplex. Yeah, right outside in the garden or whatever it was. Ed, uh, of course, told investigators exactly where to dig. And sure enough, in Ed's mother's front courtyard, investigators recovered the decaying skull of Cynthia Shaw. And just as Ed had told them, her skull was buried in such a way that she was facing and looking up say, looking into up in his room. Ed's bedroom. Remember in the last episode, he mentioned that he would, uh, quote, talk to her about love things at night. Ugh. Yeah. Well, it seems that he wasn't lying about that. So I don't I don't know what else to say about that. It's there's just so disturbing. Yeah, there's nothing else to say about it. It's just it. beyond disturbing. Okay, so good news is we now have a confession, and more than enough evidence to charge Kemper. So he was officially arraigned on eight counts of first-degree murder on April 30th, 1973. And Patrick, the pace at which this whole case and trial moves is going to blow your mind. To give you an idea of how quickly things used to move back then, Kemper literally turned himself in six days prior in Colorado, and he's already being arraigned. So I found this interesting. Before Ed's first, before Ed's arraignment, Ed was presented with his booking sheet and asked to fill it out, like his info. Yeah. And it's pretty, it's standard practice. And um, do you remember Detective Mickey Alufi? Yeah. Okay. So Ed asked Detective Alufi if he could be his emergency contact listed. 
And he apparently had nothing but the highest regard for the detective and told him, look, I don't have anyone left. You fucking killed them all. So can you do it? And Alufi was like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) So he let him list him. What's it going to do? I don't, I mean, I don't know. If he dies in prison, they're going to call him? Yeah, basically. Okay. Just crazy. But I found it interesting that Ed genuinely viewed him as a close friend or maybe like a father figure. I don't know. No, he, he thought of him as a close friend. It plays into that whole seeking approval with the law enforcement people. But, well, there's always a desperation for approval in Ed, I've noticed, especially with men. Yeah. Because he yeah, admired yeah. his father, you know, never quite got that approval. Never but it was it. just in reach, you know. And then watched his father get it with another family and other kids yeah. get it from him. His dad never gave it to him. So anyways, Ed is in jail awaiting his trial and appearing very eager to testify. He's very eager to share with the world. Which is why I found this next part so odd. On May 28th, Ed took a pen clip and sharpened it and tried to kill himself with it. He reportedly fought off the guards as they tried to intervene and take Ed to the hospital, even though the wound wasn't life-threatening. Um, And this isn't the first suicide attempt on his part, by the way. So just be warned about that. And although I don't have all the details, I truly feel that each attempt that Ed made to take his own life was a very feeble one. And not to sound callous, but it was definitely a manipulation tactic of sorts, in my opinion. This was a serial killer who was very well-versed on dismembering bodies. He had it down to science. He did it at least eight times, right? Yeah. So it seems to me that if he truly wanted to kill himself to avoid facing the music, you know, yeah, it's not he would else. have the ability well, to, to do so. We're going to see more evidence of that later. But yeah, but it's not just that. It's, it's not really, trying to sound like a dick or you're insensitive. Not, you're, not, you're not at all. What it really does is it comes across as like a scream for attention, right? We see that time and time again. You hear about people that, you know, try to take their own life and, you know, Luckily, they don't they don't succeed or whatever, however you want to phrase that. But a lot of times, it's more of a cry for attention because what they did would never actually really kill themselves. Like it was more like, "Look what I'm doing." I feel like it was a cry, or not a cry, but I feel like it was him trying to display humanistic tendencies or humanistic emotion. Uh, yeah, humanistic remorse because as he has none. Right, right. And maybe this will he thinks this is what he's supposed prove to prove before his trial that he's remorseful. Right. Maybe. So now we get to the trial. And Pat, we could honestly do a whole episode on this trial. We could do an episode on like um, everybody's trial. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll do two we really episodes could. on Bundy's. This trial was just what? It was crazy. I feel, but I feel like it has been covered for the most part. And um, it would involve a lot of rehashing the crimes that, and I think we've had enough of that. No, we kind of put that behind us in episode two. We've moved on from the actual crime scenes and the, the horrific things that he did. However, there were yeah, there's some interesting highlights that I don't want to neglect. So let's get into his trial as briefly as I can. So probably not too briefly at all. <laughs> so we're gonna be here for a while. Sit down, get a drink. But I'm covering the the like some highlights of the trial that I feel aren't widely covered. So maybe our last hate commenter can hear something say, you new. Didn't, you didn't parrot Just these. Kidding. You didn't parrot these ones. <laughs> the cock. <laughs> <laughs> and there it is. There's the animal sound. Okay, so first of all, Ed confessed to everything. So why have a trial in the first place? That's something, well, I didn't know all of this. This is something I had always wondered and I was anxious to kind of look into. Rule of law. Ed wanted to plead guilty by reason of insanity. 
So the whole point of this trial was not to determine whether or not Ed killed these people. We know that he did. He said he did. Right. It was to determine if he was not guilty by reason of insanity. Well, if it, it was to determine if he was guilty, if he was mentally stable to commit these crimes. Right. Exactly. On his own, or if he was just completely a bonkers, which so, basically determines, for those that don't know, whether you get the death penalty of your life in prison or a mental institute. Well, it, that, or he could walk free. If found, well, it, that's what the whole issue was. That's why the whole state of California was up in arms saying that they, they could walk free. Walk free? Yeah. I, I mean, I could see 10 years down the road. We've seen that so many There times. was a chance. Was, I mean, crazy. The whole state of California was just on edge saying that this guy could walk free one day to include Ed's own family. We are like, he him? can't. What's left <laughs> yeah, what's him? left of him? And it's just crazy. Ed's trial officially began on October 23rd, 1973, which is only six months after he turned himself in. That's crazy to me. It is. It's not because you, you look at the judicial system now and you see how long it takes for some people to go through. Yeah. There's a lot of behind the scenes detective work and connecting dots and crime scene analysis and all these things that go on now. That was kind of done for them. There was nothing too. for them to do. He uh, literally he walked in him, and was yeah. like, here's everything. Here's where it's buried. Here's where all the parts are. Mm-hmm. I did this. Here's the details. And they're like, the cops are literally Any like. Any questions they had, he answered I'm for done. them. I don't yeah. have to do any. There's no detective work. So then at that point, you're literally just waiting for court proceedings to get to that point. Amongst the many people who testified were psychologists for both the prosecution and the defense, naturally. Of course. Because they're trying to see if he's... It's an insanity plea, so they're going to get... That's all it's going to be is psychologists on both sides. One psychologist who testified on behalf of the prosecution named Dr. Joel Fort spent hours upon hours with Ed prior to the trial, and his findings were a problem for the defense, so for Ed's side. And that's honestly, just a side note on that... The six months it took to take to get to trial. That's what took. That's what took so that long. long. It would have been yeah. like two or three months had he not have to sit down with seventeen different psychologists. Well, the state, the prosecution is going to need a leg to stand on for sure. I mean, they're going to have to have something. Like, is he find out that he is saying? You're going to have multiple psychologists. They're going to want 10, 20 sessions with this guy. Doctor Fort testified that Ed not only knew what he did, knew what he did was inherently wrong, but he also fed off the fame of being a serial killer. That particular finding shattered what is called the M. Naughton rule, under which a defendant can only be found not guilty by reason of insanity if it is beyond clear that the defendant had no idea what he was doing was wrong. Makes sense? So yeah. it's like... Because that's the that's what the insanity plea is, is you're right. saying, I didn't know what I was doing. I had a mental break or I have mental issues or I have mental right. illness. I don't know what I was doing was wrong. Well, this was a problem because the defense's whole, so Ed's defense whole, the whole stance relied on what's called the product standard, which basically claims that an entire array of violent behaviors before, during, and after the crimes are directly related to like a disease mind or a mental illness or something that like the person may have known right from wrong in retrospect but all the violence he was committing, they didn't know was wrong. But, at the yeah, time. but at the time, it was kind of like the devil made me do it stance. Right, right. Well, that one. That kind of thing. Held up, yeah. Well, this was actually a defense used by the son of Sam, interestingly enough. So really? it's been used, yeah, a few times. Well, so, it, it seems to be a good one to use for a case like this. Serial killers that are repeatedly violent from mm-hmm. their young age till they're caught. Repeated violence, you can use that stance saying, hey, just because they have a pattern of behavior, they didn't know it was wrong when they did it. They learned it afterwards or whatever. Right, exactly. He can look back in hindsight and or be like- found out afterwards. He's like, oh, damn, what did bad. I do? Yeah. So things aren't looking too good for Ed as of now. 
And it got even worse for him when the whole trial had to be halted because he had a big childlike meltdown in the middle of proceedings. And he would have a couple of these. There was a really pretty girl in the courtroom. And Ed was, of course, awkwardly staring at her. Well, when she locked eyes with him, she is kind of a bad badass. She raised her hand up to her neck and made like a cutthroat motion. And Ed lost his shit. Honestly, he, what else would you do, though, if Ed Kemper is staring at you like that? I'd be like, oh, no. He came on glute. He stood up and began, like, pointing at the woman, like, tattletelling on her and demanding that security do something. And his attorney was forced to recess because Ed just wouldn't, like, chill out. Like, he wouldn't calm down. Being shamed crazy. by a woman again. Like, here's this huge-ass six-foot-nine serial killer and some harmless, random small woman makes a gesture and he but feels not, threatened. That's his whole life. That was the, his mother's driving force. He was being, he was not being, it wasn't just a woman looking at him. She was putting him down. She was threatening him. He she was demeaning yeah. him. Just like his mother just had like done all mom those did. years. Well, psychologists have, and also psychologists, they've reviewed that whole incident and it's thought that it was the effects of Ed being bullied in school and by his mother, like you said. So, I don't know. It's, I mean, it was, he's just a man baby because of it, I guess. Well, he's also got some deep-rooted trauma and issues. Very much so. That That's a trigger for. A woman demeaning him or bullying him is going to trigger that every time. So Ed got his shit together, and then the following day, so the next day, Ed threw another hissy fit. The prosecution uh, brought the jury in the whole courtroom around back of the courthouse outside where they had pulled up Ed's Ford Galaxy to show as an exhibit to the jury. Well, when Ed's attorney tried to get Ed, of course he was cuffed, you know, to go outside with everyone, he refused and had another meltdown because he had seen an attractive woman like in the courtroom and he didn't want to be around her. Eventually he gave in and went outside. But <laughs> the dude's fucked in the head. He really is. He can't even be in the presence of women. I mean, he violently threw up in the presence of a pretty woman. Yeah. Two pretty women. It's crazy. Another highlight of the trial that I can't fail to mention is when Ed's little sister, Alan, remember her? Yeah, yeah. She was called to the stand to testify on her brother's behalf since the defense was trying to prove insanity. Ironically, she was on the stand defending her older brother by pointing out all of the disgusting things he did growing up. <laughs> Oops. Well, to you know, to try and convince them that what he's they're doing insane. is that pattern of establishing a pattern. Yeah, they're doing the pattern pre-crime mm-hmm. that he was the same that the defense that they were trying to use. I forget the name of it, like you said, a character witness. No, the, she's that, very much so a character well, she's, witness. She's she's painting the picture of pre-murders, right? That he they're using this defense that a life of crime doesn't mean that he knows it's wrong. But they're painting the picture of the life of violence and just dastardly, disgusting things he does. Well, she told him all about dismembering, you know, all the pet cats and putting the cats' heads on stakes and praying to them and all of the twisted, remember the death gas chamber games that they used to play and all that stuff. And Alan even went as far as to testify that when she heard of the news of the co-ed murders and the beheadings, she immediately thought that my my fucking brother did that. <laughs> and she said, she claimed that her mother felt that as well. We will never know, right? No, we She's dead. But 
She told the court that when she confronted Ed about being involved in the murders, like she actually asked him, did you do this? And he denied it. However, he implored her not to talk about this around their mom because she would start to like question him. Well, she'd be, he, she, he probably thought she'd call the cops on him and shit. So she was definitely a, quote, I guess, good witness for the defense, so to speak. She builds the pattern. Yeah, especially since psychologists who were testifying on Ed's behalf weren't much help. She's probably all. the strongest witness they had because she builds, she builds the pattern. She was. She and she's was. like, I knew it was him when I first saw it happening kind of thing. On October 28th, 1973, not long after the trial began. Five days. It came to a halt. Yet again, when Ed made another feeble attempt on his own life. Okay. In fact, one such newspaper was quoted as calling it a, quote, miserable attempt. And psychologist Dr. Fort referred to it publicly as a, quote, suicide gesture. Yep. So it's not just me being a bitch here and callous. No, it's a gesture. It it was very much, and I'm not going to go into detail about how he did it. Right, right, right. But it's like the paper clipping like we were just talking about earlier. It's a gesture. He needed a few stitches. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's an attention or it's, it's a, a I think it's to show show, feign remorse is the words I was looking for earlier. Okay, guys, we've made it to the main event of the trial. In my opinion, November 1st, 1973, when Edmund Kemper testified, it's a ballsy move, putting him on the stand in my, for the defense at least. It was a very risky move on the defense's behalf. Rarely does a defendant take the stand. In these cases, no, am you don't I want wrong? To testify as, yeah. Especially when you're trying to do uh, insanity, mm-hmm. you don't want to get up there because all it takes is the one question and it shits all over your defense. As a quick side note, before we get into him testifying, um, bef- uh, <laughs> I have to mention, unfortunately, and we see this often uh, with all the media attention that Ed's case had garnered, it of course attracted lunatics and groupies who lose their shit for these monsters, which is so gross. I don't understand why they do it. We see it with Bundy. We've seen it with the Night Stalker. It happened with Ed, too. Fanatics. They were There were girls in there, groupies. And when he walked up to the stand, they were squealing and giggling and chatting, so much so that the judge had to admonish them and demand order in the courtroom. Imagine, and the victim's families are in that courtroom listening to that shit. Can yeah. you imagine? That's ridiculous. I would throw can you imagine (laughs) oh my gosh okay so Kemper's lawyer was the first to question him and to quickly sum it up Ed basically declared under oath that during the crimes he committed that he we hear this often he blacked out and he even took it a step further Ed stated I believe there are two people inside of me end quote so if you don't see where he's going with this Ed and his legal team are trying to insinuate without a proper diagnosis, by the way, that he has DID or multiple personality disorder. And they thought that it may just work since there was a smidgen back then in the early 70s, just a smidgen of medical evidence at that time to link DID to schizophrenia, which if you remember, Ed was originally misdiagnosed with schizophrenia when he was 15 at um, Atascadero when he murdered his grandparents. Yeah. So it was a Hail Mary tactic, I think, by the defense, personally. I don't think it's, you know, rock solid. Well, it's not because there was no diagnosis, right? Yeah, there's no diagnosis. No one, no one, none of the psychologists were backing that up on the trial. 
His attorney asked him about his previous failed suicide attempts and effectively why he didn't get the job done. And Ed's response was, quote, because I would have died too quickly. I was thinking about the girls who died, their fathers. And then at this point, Ed started to cry on the stand, so he wiped a tear from his eye. And then he said, sorry, their mothers. And I thought about what I had done. So, Oh, big sad Ed. Yeah, crocodile tears. Mm -hmm. Whatever sympathy Ed may have garnered for himself was very short-lived, however, when it was the state's turn to question him. The state attorney basically negated Ed's statement about wanting to die a slow death and being so remorseful about the murders by bringing up the fact that he had been really busy in prison bullying fellow serial killer Herbert (laughs) Herbert Mullen, Mullen, sorry, behind bars. (laughs) <laughs> they were together behind bars. That's and right. I forgot about that. If you aren't familiar with Herbert Mullen, he had just recently, like really, re- I think the same year, I'm not sure, had been convicted of killing 13 people in California. And he claimed that he had killed these people in order to prevent earthquakes from happening. Mm. Ed and Herbert Mullen were both behind bars together and they had somewhat of a rivalry, if you will. Oh, because Ed doesn't want to, it's, it's, it's that narcissism in, in effect. Both of them, yeah. The serial killer narcissism, you can't have two of us in the same room. Like, I'm the attention guy here. I'm the famous one. And uh, here's Ed telling us more about that. Uh, I knew Herbie, and uh, I don't call him Herbert Mullen. And of course, I don't call myself Edmund Amo Kemper III either. I never heard that in my life until I was locked up for murder, right? Um, but little Herbie was when I met him in Redwood City Jail, okay? Our first meeting was I bumped him out of the priority cell where they could look from the office and see through the steel door, the glass in the door, and see him physically, or they could watch the monitor and watch him. He got bumped next door. There was a shower in the priority cell. Never had to leave the cell. For him to shower from the other cell, he had to go out into the main area. They had to lock everybody in one of the, uh, uh, I guess you call them tanks, moved 15 guys, 30 guys out of the tank into the activity area. They'd walk him around into their tank. He'd shower. He'd come back out. And all the way over there and all the way back, they're catcalling him. They're calling him names. They're yelling because he caused them great interruption in their day. Little Herbie. Little Herbie. (laughs) He really called him Little Herbie. (laughs) That's, I don't know why that's so funny to me. So... (laughs) Aside from the state wiping the floor with Ed by dispelling his multiple personality disorder claim, they already dispelled the suicide yeah. claim. I mean, because if he's busy doing that, you know. He's not that remorseful. He's bullying little Irby. <laughs> he's not that remorseful. No, not at all. For sure. The prosecution ended their evidence presenta- presentation against Ed by showing a videotape of Ed's confession. And this was brutal. Well, yeah, he's so well. People, yeah, telling the story, and and people in the courtroom were quite literally sick, and the jury was like forever changed with that videotape because he's just sitting there so matter of factly, like you said, recounting all of the horrific things that he did with these young victims. Yeah, and he's not remorseful, so it shits on that argument, and he's not. He knew what he was doing and stuff, and he was describing all the horrible things he was doing, and it shits all over the other argument. Absolutely. But oddly, Ed in in the courtroom was visibly 
upset with the tape. He would put his hands over his ears to try to muffle out the sound of his own voice. In fact, he got so upset that his attorney had to request the judge to allow Ed to wait outside the courtroom while the tape was playing. The judge complied and let him. He doesn't want another fucking meltdown. I wouldn't have done that. I would have made him sit on his hands like a child and listen. No, but I mean, I, I, I agree with that, but I see where the judge is coming from, right? You this did dude, this. This dude already had, they've had to cancel and postpone and stop the trial three or four times at this they point. They just want to get it over with. Because he fucking throws a tantrum. Mm-hmm. So like, if he's going to about to throw a fucking tantrum, sit him in the fucking cage in the other room and let everybody else re- listen to this shit. He's a big bitch. He's going to get his. Don't worry about it. He's the big bitch. Yeah, basically. Very much so. So this was a pretty eventful trial, to say the least. And if you can believe, this trial only lasted three weeks. Yeah, I can believe it. And this was a high-profile case. For reference, the OJ trial lasted 11 months. So, I mean, it was just crazy to me that it only lasted three weeks. Times were different, too, like you said. Yes and no, but when you... but you, you, Everything was very cut and dry with it, I was going to say, it's out of context yeah. when you compare the two directly because very the OJ so. trial was... Like I said, hours and hours and hundreds of hours of police and and, and and lawyer work. And then top of it, he's saying, I didn't do this. So it was back and forth. Right. This is like Ed literally sat down and said, I fucking did it. Yeah. Am I insane or not is the question. Yeah. Okay. We just shit all over the fact that you're not insane. Done. There's, Story. there's <laughs> nothing fucking, to send off to a lab. There's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to argue back and forth. We're all in agreement here. You did this shit. On November 8th, 1973, the 12-member jury of six men and six women found Ed Kemper to be sane and guilty on all counts. No shit. Unfortunately for Ed, he would not be able to live out his childhood dream of going to the electric chair because the Supreme Court had just abolished the death penalty the previous year in California. So instead, Edmund Kemper was sentenced to eight concurrent seven years to life sentences. After the judge handed down the sentence in his Ed's typical thing that it was concurrent though. And seven year eight concurrent seven year years to life sentences. Right. So he 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 got sentenced eight different times to sentence seven to life. Seven years mm-hmm. minimum seven, maximum life. Mm-hmm. So the minimum he could ever serve technically would be seven because they're concurrent. Mm-hmm. They're not consecutive. Yep. He's been up for parole quite a bit. So he could be up for parole in seven years. He's up for parole next in 2024. I'm just saying, seven years later, he could be up for parole. So Mm -hmm. I'm surprised that they didn't make it consecutive. Unless there's something in the law that says you can't do that or whatever. I don't know California law. So After the judge handed down the sentence in Ed's typical kiss-ass fashion, he walked himself over to the prosecution's table and shook hands with the state's attorney and congratulated them on their win and said to the lead attorney, quote, Mr. Chang, I want to thank you for your restraint during this trial. Weirdo. I'm just telling you, this is another moment when he walks away and I'm sitting there as one of those attorneys. I'm looking at the other attorneys and just, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> is this the Did Twilight you see Zone? That? What the fuck was that? Get him out of here. Oh, I need a beer. Like, <laughs> I just dumped my water all down that. my face. Looked over and you just water pouring down the side of your face. Do you remember that movie with Leslie Nielsen? Was it Airplane? Mm-hmm. And he and the and he talks about the captain having a drinking problem, and he all he does is drink water, but just throws it at his face. face. Yeah, was that was me just now. Was it airplane was it airplane or airport? Airplane. It was airplane. Yeah, I was thinking naked gun, but it was airplane. <laughs> no, it wasn't naked gun. <laughs> yeah, that's where he's like, hey, this is, do we have clearance? Um, clearance? What's your Victor Vector? Yeah, what's your Victor Vector? <laughs> Shirley, don't call me Shirley. <laughs> 
Oh, Lord. Where are we going? Oh, dear God. Okay. So, although he was deemed sane, Ed was initially sent to a medical facility called Vacaville for observation before he would start his sentence at the famed Folsom Prison. Well, he did have two suicidal gestures. Yes. And there's some they're covering their mental asses. illness there. So, they're like, yeah, they're covering their... They're because if he killed himself in jail, the jail could be held liable if they could have prevented it, but whatever. So he was supposed to, after that, then he goes to Folsom, where Johnny Cash performed. Cool, huh? Didn't they close down Folsom Prison? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they closed it. And Vacaville is a trip, man. I had no idea. First of all, it is, or at least it was, referred to as, quote, the Disneyland of the North by inmates. Because by law, the warden at Vacaville has to be a medical doctor. Oh, and so the, it's not a prison. Well, yeah, and the prisoners, for the most part, they get to, like, roam free once they can be trusted, right? So it was definitely not some draconian, whip-cracking prison. Well, no, it makes a huge difference when your warden is not from, you know, the Bureau of Prisons, where they're going to be like, hell no, fuck their medical needs, they're prisoners first. The doctor's going to be like, I'm a doctor, I'm obligated under, you know, oath and code, I got to treat the medical, fuck the prison part. And if you recall, Ed loved he ate up his time at the last facility he was at after he murdered his grandparents he fucking a, running around fucking counseling and diagnosing other fucking patients so i was just in heaven here so much so that he wanted to stay there he didn't want to be transferred to Folsom nope and we all know that ed's manipulative and he has manipulated the system many a time yep so you can probably guess that soon after he was cleared and transferred to Folsom he was transferred right back to Vacaville Medical Facility, where he remains to this day. Yeah, well, he knew the strings to pull. I was wondering why, so I kind of looked into it. Supposedly, it was because the staff at Folsom Prison, they didn't want the responsibility of a high-profile inmate like Kemper on their hands at that time. Uh, there's, you know, there's something to be said about that. They can bring increased violence. They have more things to worry about with him, they get, especially with other inmates around. Yeah. He's got to take up something. That's, they can't put him in seg. They, you know what I mean? There's there's a lot goes on with a high-profile criminal like that in, in a place like Folsom. It's not a supermax like Colorado's where right. they're all basically in seg. Mm. Every single person. Yeah, the whole time. This is like a prison block. and They can't mm-hmm. put him there, obviously. So, I mean, there, yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot to say about that. So, he was sent back to Vacaville. And I guess how it works out is you spend time in what was called the hole. Probably not really like a prison hole. It was probably a little bit different. Yeah. Just isolated at the time. So he spent three months there, and then he was released and sent to what is called the main line, where all of the prisoners roam free and were treated like human beings. To my understanding, at least back then, I'm not sure what it's like now because it's still obviously around, they have, like, the prisoners have jobs, and they attend their psychology appointments, and they have, like, a cafeteria without any set times to eat or whatever mm-hmm. in class. It's like a village. Well, yeah, it's going to be. <laughs> it's open. It's run, At that time, it was run by an actual doctor, so it's yeah. much more focused on the rehabilitation. And your appointments. The medical and, appointments. Yeah. You know, the integrating back and basically creating a society in there where they can better themselves and rehabilitate so that it's easier to integrate back into society. And guys, there just so happened to be another famous prisoner there on the main line at the same time as Ed. You may have heard of him, Pat. Charlie Manson. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> In fact, um, if you remember, Pat, uh, the Netflix series Mind Hunters, which we will get into more here in a bit, there's a scene where the FBI agents go to Vacaville to interview Charlie Manson. And before they speak to him, they talk to 
their pal, Ed Kemper, for some preliminary tips to kind of get a feel. And Ed warns them. He says, don't mention Charlie's height because he's insecure about it or something like that. He talks about, yeah, he said, don't mention how short he is or whatever it was. Yeah, because Manson was a tiny little guy. And I just thought it was funny. But that was also, if you remember, and I'm sure you probably talk about it later, that was Kemper's way of kind of bullying Manson or knocking him down. I mean, he's just a little guy. He's just a little guy. He's not as good as me. But yeah, Manson was another very famous prisoner there as well. And by all accounts, Manson and Ed, like you said, did not get along. Supreme narcissists. They're, um, not gonna, they're one of them is the top killer of the place. Well, I can see how two very high profile criminals wouldn't get along. It'd be, it'd turn into a pissing match, but it was really Charlie Manson hated Ed because in Charlie's words, you know, he hated like pedophiles and, and, um, rapists and yeah, rapists and things like that. And he was like, I've never killed anyone. Well, and that's the thing that's about to say is Charlie truly yeah. is a different story because he never really, like he's so holy. He never killed anyone. He was just a cult leader. I guess technically not, but, but he was, he didn't, he was a cult leader no, I know. who sent his people out to go kill people. I, technically he didn't, but he but. never actually committed the crime. So in his eyes, in his narcissism and in his psyche, he wasn't an actual killer. Very true. So he can despise people like Ed Kemper, like, fuck you, you did that shit, nasty ass. And he did. At Vacaville, Ed became an absolute model prisoner, and he freely opened himself up to become a case study for doctors, lawyers, the media, and of course, a new up-and-coming branch of the FBI that was being developed to profile various criminals, the Behavioral Sciences Unit. And get this, he even consented to have a lobotomy performed on him. He figured that by doing this, it would guarantee him residency permanently at Vodkaville yeah. for life. They keep calling it Vodkaville. 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 Sounds better that way. You need fucking vodka to work for <laughs> I know you would. An anonymous donor even donated like $5,000 for Ed's lobotomy procedure. However, Ed's request for the lobotomy was ultimately denied in 1977 the reason being because it was thought that Ed may use this as a means to get released one day, one day make parole, you know? I thought I thought maybe there was going to be denied because the FBI or somebody pushed us like, no, 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 we need this dude. We need this guy, no. This dude is like patient zero. They were too scared that he oh, would that get set free. I don't know how you live a life with a lobotomy, but whatever. Anyways, Ed had some free time on his hands now with the lobotomy off the table, so he started to volunteer to read books to blind people for an organization called The Blind Project. It's a fucking creative name. He would sit and record himself reading various books over a tape recorder. <laughs> this, I just realized what you're talking about here. Many of which, Patrick, you can still listen nope. to to this very day. You can go listen to books on tape by Ed Kemper. The most disturbing of which to me are the children's books. Imagine Ed Kemper reading your child a book. Just think about your kid Maybe not, not nowadays because that's not a thing really as much. But think about your kid going to the library when they're like 12, 13, 14 after school or whatever to go because they like An books audio on tape. book, yeah. They mm-hmm. got their Walkman. They like books on tape. And you're looking at it and you're like, your kid comes home with like five or six of them or whatever. And Narrated like, hey, by me. He's listening. To, what are you listening to? And you pick up the tape and it's like, Where the Wild Things Are, narrated by Edmund Kemper. What the <laughs> f- Like Ed Kemper is reading Where the Wild Things Are? According to the LA Times, by 1987, Ed Kemper had racked up 5,000 hours of reading, earning just $36 a month for his work. He racked up many more thousands of hours because he continued this job all the way until 2015. Yeah. 
reading books and on speaking them on tape till 2016. So if your kid is 10, he may have heard a book on tape by Ed Kemper. Just saying. Here is Ed talking. Sorry to ruin your day. Here's Ed talking a little bit more about that endeavor. What have been your favorite readings? Sometimes uh, children's books, some of the more complex children's books like uh, White's, Charlotte's Web, uh, Stuart Little, Trumpet of the Swan, um, which were amazingly complex and before their times. On the day we visited, mass murderer Ed Kemper was transcribing Star Wars. Reaching for the internal controls, 3PO was shocked. Behave yourself, R2. He finally chastised his companion. You're going to get us into trouble. He just ruined Star Wars for me. <laughs> oh, just crazy. Yeah, apparently Ed even had fans who liked to listen to only him read, you know? And he had fans that would come to visit him along with their seeing-eye dogs. And Kemper, of course, felt like a superstar. I bet you right now, if he could, Edmund Kemper would have a podcast. Oh, for sure. He doesn't have a horrible voice for this stuff. I think he does. Well, just because I've heard the shit he says. He also associated his voice with everything he did. If you didn't know who that was, if you heard that voice on a tape or a podcast, you'd be like, it's not horrible to listen to. Ed also spent hours giving interviews to various authors and media outlets. And you can still watch several on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Uh, Patrick, here's a clip from an interview Ed gave to a famous French news outlet. You'll hear him talking about his first few co-ed murders, almost boasting about them. Oh, uh, the first time, okay, uh, the two girls were killed around 6 p.m. By 11 the next morning, they are both completely gone out of my life, physically, all right? That's not even 24 hours. The third murder, which is the second incident, okay, uh, I'm in the middle of trying to get my record sealed, right? Thursday night, I killed her. I took off Friday. I didn't go to work. I called in sick, took CTO, all right? Dismembered her body. Got rid of her body, but kept her head in her hands because they're identifiable. They're highly identifiable. I kept those at the apartment. Okay? That Friday night, uh, Thursday night, I took her. Friday, uh, Friday morning, she was dismembered. Friday night, she was disposed of. Right? Saturday morning, I left. Right? And I didn't have, I wasn't satisfied that I, I took the head along in the hands, but I didn't, I couldn't put them someplace that I would, could be sure they would be dug up by an animal or just be somewhere. It was it's scary going out there trying to bury somebody or dispose of body parts in a community or out in the, even in the boonies where you don't know where you're at and who can come up at any moment. I had some real close calls there where people had come out of nowhere. And if they, if a body's found and they remember this beige looking car sitting there the night, that's evidence. So it was very, very hard to get rid of this stuff. We're so sorry that it was so difficult, Ed. <laughs> so sorry. It was so trying for you. <laughs> it must have been just awful for you. But yeah, that was just, of course, one of many interviews that Ed gave. He loves to talk. I think you can pretty much tell. We know that. But uh, in 1997, California Governor Pete Wilson banned media interviews with prisoners, ultimately ending Ed's media stardom. Oh, yeah. The governor apparently banned interviews after Ed's fellow uh, Vacaville resident, Charlie Manson, gave some wild performances while being interviewed by the tabloids and for various talk shows. I remember hearing about that. It's crazy. So now, friends, we got to get to the highlight of the whole episode, in my opinion, at least for me. 
Ed's relationship with FBI special agents John Douglas and Robert Ressler, a trio made infamous thanks to the hit Netflix series Mind Hunters. So, in the 1970s, Douglas and Ressler began to pioneer the study of criminal psychological profiling at the very new FBI Behavioral Sciences Unit. It's so new, they were the only two in it. Yeah, they were definitely going rogue with their endeavor here because psychological profiling had just never really been done before to this degree. It was never heard of, really. The whole concept of profiling criminals was considered really out there, almost like voodoo. You know, it was, by, like, it was like witchcraft. Of yeah, law yeah. By most of the FBI and law enforcement. However, Ressler and Douglas made it their mission to visit offenders, victims and law enforcement in order to develop a database of human behavior that would one day be used by law enforcement to catch all the bad guys. Together, Ressler and Douglas interviewed like 30 criminals, many of which were Notorious, yeah, say, for lack of like, a better word. I hate to was, say that they're famous, but... It was, the t- it was the decade to fucking do it. Yeah. They even helped catch a serial killer, Pat, that you may have heard of, and one that we have covered, mm-hmm. Ted Bundy. Yep, they were part of that. Didn't Kemper help that, too? Mm, no. Well, I don't, I don't think so. Maybe, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but I don't believe so. I thought he did. Maybe I, you would know more than me, so... I'm not sure if they let him help on that case. And uh, Special Agent Robert Ressler's book titled Whoever Fights Monsters. The pair of them have books galore. I'm not sure. They made careers. They made celebrities. So Robert Ressler's book uh, titled Whoever Fights Monsters. Ressler talked about one of many intense and long interviews with Edmund Kemper. Ressler, Douglas, and Kemper spent, bless you, Coconut. She had a sneezing fit. She's having a fit over it. I don't know what she's doing. Wrestler Douglas and Kemper spent four hours locked alone in a cell at Vacaville. After Ed detailed all of his vicious crimes and, you know, gory detail, of course, blaming them on how his mom raised him. Of course. Agents Wrestler and Douglas were like, okay, we have what we need. So they buzzed for a guard to come and unlock the door, you know, so they could leave. After several minutes, no guard arrived. Uh-oh. And the agent started to get like, a little nervous. Like, ooh, do, 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 Yo, do, this do. dude killed a whole bunch of people, <laughs> yeah. and he's a monster. And he's six foot nine. Kemper stated, quote, if I went ape shit in here, you'd be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't you? I could screw your head off and place it on the table to greet the guard. I would have shat my pants, I think. That, no, thank you. I would have gone through the bars. <laughs> That's what I would have done. I don't know what I would have done. Wrestler wrote, quote, my mind raced. I envisioned him reaching for me with his large arms, pinning me to a wall in a stranglehold, and then jerking my head around until my neck was broken. Of course, Ed thrived on this fear, creating this fear, but eventually, after a few more minutes of mind games being played, a guard came and Ed assured wrestler as he was being walked out that he was just kidding. Just JK, bro. Yeah, JK. Y'all good? LOL. <laughs> Fist bump. However, Wrestler later stated that this incident right here that just happened forever changed the FBI's policy. So despite what you may see on TV, agents would never be allowed to interview a violent criminal alone again. That's it. That was it. That was the catalyst for change right there. <laughs> you, well, you go back to your boss and be like, how'd that go and deal with that dude? And you're like, well, the guards never came and he sat there and said he was going to rip our heads off. And I also shut my pants. <laughs> Twice. Twice. (laughs) 
In Special Agent John Douglas's book titled Mind Hunter, he observed that, quote, Ed viewed his kills as a game in which he was learning the best way to play. I think that's a good way to put it. But isn't that all serial killers? I mean, obviously. Very much so. He wrote that in his book, Mindhunter. They pioneered criminal profiling for the FBI. So obviously. So obviously it is. Yeah. A lot of them anyway. It is. But if you look at a lot of the ones we've covered, if you've ever heard about them, if you've ever followed any of them, it's a game to them. And every one gets a little cleaner. (laughs) Yeah. The first ones are usually their worst ones. And their last ones are actually their their worst ones because they just completely break down. Douglas wrote that, quote, Kemper was particularly interested in learning how to put his victims at ease in the moments before he attacked with sudden violence in order to make the murders go as smoothly as possible. Makes it easier. And we absolutely saw that in the previous episode when Ed was describing how he calmed a few of his victims while driving them (laughs) to the killing ground. I I believe it was Aiko Koo. She was the first young woman he used that tactic with. Do you remember his bullshit story about how he was planning on committing suicide and he just didn't want to be alone? So she was like, okay, I'll be there with you and then I'll go and get help. Yeah. But Agent Douglas concluded that Kemper was all about manipulation, domination, and control, which is the trifecta we always see in serial killers more time than not, right? It's it's there every time. Arguably, I believe this stems from Ed having such a lack of control in his childhood. I don't know. He was dominated. He was bullied. He was dominated by his mother. He had no control. It's the same thing. It's all these serial killers, not all, but most of the ones, especially we talk about it almost every time. Mm Mm-hmm. When you look at their childhoods, which you always go into great detail on, which is important, you see the opposite. It's always yeah. mom or dad or family life or whatever it is. One of them. It, their whole life is controlled and dominated, and they use that mm-hmm. aspect in their life later. They get it back and take it out on victims in the in the future. Yep. Absolutely. Definitely came from childhood. During um, Ed's interviews with the profilers, he described his final murder, the murder of his or his final, final murders the murder of his mother and her friend. And he told them basically how he had rehearsed their murders, particularly his mom's, numerous nights prior to actually committing them. Oh, I bet. He's been planning that one since he was... He revealed that he often did this before he would go out hunting for co-eds as well. So he like planned ahead, like almost like he was nervous or unsure of himself. It's kind of like what I do before I order a drive through window. It's like a dry run? <laughs> yeah, like a dry run. Okay, I'm going to order this, this, and this. <laughs> so I don't sound like a stupid person when I drive by. <laughs> no, I'm, I literally am trying not to order everything on the menu. Oh, yeah, that's true. I'll take one of everything. But I reckon this comes not only from him being calculating, but also him being, like I said, extremely insecure. And you can't assert dominance and control like he wants to. That's his fantasy if you're insecure. Nope. You have to be sure of yourself. You have to be well rehearsed, right? So that's why he's doing that. Of course. Douglas classified Ed's killing spree not as sadistic, but as fetishistic. Fetishistic, which I thought was interesting. For reference, fetishistic killing sprees give the offenders a connection between murder and sexual gratification. Well, for a lack of a better term, he had sex with most of their heads yes. and their bodies. Not before. He, his thing was always after. So it was very fetishistic. Very fetishistic. Very fetishini or whatever this is. I wouldn't say that he was a fetish killer. That he was very careful never to say that. He did not kill for it's that. crazy. Yeah. But his murders were very... Not ritualistic, but he did the same thing. It was always the same kind of fetish. It was always right. sexual assault 
to a dead body and then right. sodomy of, you know, the head or whatever part of the body. Sodomy of the head. That's the best way I could put it. Something else interesting to note, Ed went back and forth between admitting and denying that he committed necrophilia to profilers. He especially denied it uh, a few times that he went in front of the parole board. Or he, just wouldn't it, he wouldn't admit to it. Or he would di- divert the question. Like, you know, he would try to just derail like the whole conversation. Said I killed His him. big thing was, I've done some horrible things. I've d- have you, did you ever commit necrophilia? I've done some horrible things. Well, so you have, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you haven't. Yeah. So nevertheless, Kemper stood to be a wealth of knowledge for the FBI's behavioral sciences department because he was an open book and he offered so much insight into the mind of what was originally known, not as a serial killer, but as a sequence killer. And that's crazy to me. It wasn't always called a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk briefly just about the series Mindhunter. In the series, Kemper is seriously brilliantly portrayed by actor Cameron Britton. And guys, he looked and sounded just like him, which I'm sure messed with the actor's head a little bit. But Britton was nominated for an Emmy for the performance. And here's a clip from um, Cameron Britton. Just listen to how much he sounds like Ed. When I'm getting into character with Ed, it's funny. I can get the hair straightened and clip the mustache put on the clothes, throw on the boots, and even change my voice. You feel it consuming my insides. It's a fantastic passion. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. Because I would not allow myself to walk into a trap because I knew exactly how their minds were. That's just insane. I mean, it sounds just like him. But I read an interview with Cameron, and he basically said how he would get into character and walk in front of a mirror, and it would, like, startle him and scare him because he even felt that he looked so similar to him. It's crazy. And when he was asked, like, do you want to meet him? And he was like, I'm good. Nothing thanks. I've been living with this dude. <laughs> That's okay. For a long time. Thanks, though. Yeah. But definitely recommend the series. We've referred to it so much that I wanted to go ahead and just. No, and you see that with a lot of these shows and movies. Uh, when these when these actors, they, I mean, they really get into these characters. Yeah. And even, um, what's our boy's name? Zac Efron with Ted? Evan, Evan Peters. Oh, Evan Peters with he, even, Dahmer. He literally wore real clothes that belonged to Dahmer. He wore Dahmer's clothes. I don't think I could have done like, that. Like, that's how far these people go to get into these characters. So it's not surprising how good they get. And if I'm not wrong, that audio, you, it had side-by-side. It had side-by-side. Like, you by couldn't side. really tell, but it would be Ed Kemper talking, and then it would be Cameron talking. I have, a, yeah, it's it's crazy. I've like listened to- Like in mid-sense, just switch over to the other one. Over. It's very subtle difference. It's eerie. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. So moving on for that. Sorry, I just wanted to do a little side because no, awesome. we've referred to it so many times here. I wanted to give we it do, its and due. We, and we refer to it in a lot of other episodes. Yeah. And, you know, the behavioral science unit, especially because a lot of these killing in the 70s, all these high-profile yeah. murderers. And it's really important to know this dude was such an open book that he literally helped- his story, his life, all the crap he did literally helped develop the profiling of a serial killer and subcategories of serial killers. He was actually the first person dubbed a serial killer. Yeah, but he He wasn't the first serial killer, obviously, but he was was the first person called one. They used to go back to him after that, after the initial to help solve crimes. And he helped them develop the subcategories. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, they they used him, you know, for 
to solve many crimes. And then once, and obviously, you know, they're talking to him and they're starting to use what he's talking about and it's starting to relate. Mm-hmm. crime after crime they're going to keep going back to him because like this shit's working like i believe he's not wrong don't quote me but um in one of my books i read i believe that he did help solve btk that's was it BTK? it might have been btk no no, no. he didn't help solve it he helped create the profile, profile. for it right. obviously he didn't help solve it because duh it just got solved not too long ago, didn't it? And they're not going to bring him information. But yeah, the, I think it was that was the one I was thinking of, not John. Not. Well, he, he helped create the profile, the profile. Yeah. That he returns to the crime scene. And it was also, um, is it Gary Bruno? Is it Bru- something Bruno? I don't know. It was another person he helped solve. Anyway, he, he was a... Um, we don't talk about Bruno. He was definitely a point of reference for... To bring a lot of people to justice. So I guess maybe that was his way of paying back society. I don't know. Who, I, I think it was his way of. I don't think he cared really. No, but. I think it was his way of inserting himself into something. Getting the admiration of the men and the peers and the law enforcement. In the early to mid 80s, Ed appeared before the parole board several times. And each time his request for parole was denied, of course. No oh, shit. However... Butt cheeks were clenched when Vacaville psychologist Dr. Jack Fleming informed the parole board that he felt Ed was, quote, suitable for release. Yeah. Surprisingly, Ed was the one to counter Dr. Fleming's findings by stating, quote, society is not ready in any shape or form for me. I can't blame them for that, end quote. He also knew that he would... Live a miserable life on the outside because no one's going to know. No one's not going to know who Ed Kemper is, this six foot nine. He can't hide in public. You know what I mean? I didn't know this, but in December of 2017, Kemper's stepbrother, do you remember his dad remarried mm-hmm. and th- she had a. Yeah, she they, That's what his, his a, new wife a, kicked young him out son. of the house, basically. Yeah. So it was his stepbrother. That little kid is now an adult. December of 2017. Kemper's stepbrother feared that then-president Donald Trump may free Ed since he was up for parole that year. So he gave an interview to the Daily Mail, and he stated, quote, He has this control over the family, and there's still anger over what he did. So many people live in fear that he could be allowed freedom. You just can't trust what a president may decide. I don't want to live in fear, not be able to work or walk around, but the other other relatives are afraid to go to a restaurant or a park because of what happened. It's still there for us. And he continued to say, basically, it was a long interview, Mm -hmm. but he continued to say that um, the whole family wanted Ed to remain locked up forever. And some of the family members threatened that if he was ever released, that they would take care of them, Ed themselves. For context, Ed's father never spoke to him again. Well, no shit. Yeah. So this interview must have worked because in 2017, Ed was denied parole yet again. And the parole board has consistently always felt that Ed, and we've said this before, just genuinely lacks any remorse for his crimes. It's not there. He can say the words, but there is no remorse. He's just It's just mouth talk. He's just saying what he wants. He thinks they want to hear. That's you know, it. He's done that since he was 15. That's That's him. However, there was one family member who stuck by Ed and still sticks by him to this day, his little sister, Alan. She has remained loyal to her her brother and continues to visit him uh, at Vacaville. But is she advocating for him to be out? No, never. But she's she's talking to him. She's still her brother. Yeah. 
they're going to visit him. Yeah. And that's okay. I never, I don't know, yes or no, but I've never read anything that she has ever advocated for him to be out. She probably hasn't because she said in the court, like, I knew this was him from the start. Yeah. So she probably doesn't want him out. No. She just is supporting her brother. They still had a connection in a relationship from when they were little that she's still going to, like, not support her brother, but at least be there, like, visit him and say hi. You can't get... Mad at that. No, you can't. You know, that's her brother. That's the whole debate. Like if your child ended up being something like Ed Kemper, could you just not see them anymore? Or would you still visit them every once in a while? Or yeah. You don't know until you're put in that situation. You don't know. I, yeah, and I can't honestly. Hopefully no one's ever really put in that situation, but you don't know. You can sit here and be like, fuck that. I, I would do, do A, B, and C. You don't know what you would do. Or you'd be like, no, I would support him. And like, that would happen. You're just like, you don't know how it affects your life. Cause like his family said, like they can't go places. They still live there. People know the name. Yeah. Awful. I can't imagine being linked you live in to Santa, someone you like live that. You live in that part of California, and they're like, oh, what's your name? Oh, Joseph Kemper. Oh, God. Kemper? What? Like, are y'all from here, Kemper? <laughs> no. Who's your dad? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would definitely change my name. I'm sure a lot of them did. I'm sure tons of them have. It's like, it's like any of them. Mm-hmm. Bundy, any of those guys. They're like, who? Yep. Several of the psychologists who have contributed to informing the parole board over the years have assured us, the public, that the hearings, his parole hearings, are purely academic and that Ed Kemper has zero chance of being released. Probably, so they, don't worry. That's probably true. And they probably just sit there and want to see what the fuck he's going to do this time. And that... Or how he's going to portray himself. Yeah. That makes me feel a little better because Kemper is eligible for parole again in 2024. So essentially, what? It's almost 2023 next year, effectively. Effectively. <sighs> As of today... Day, Patrick, Ed Kemper is 73 years old. He no longer volunteers to read books for the Blind Project. However, due to a debilitating stroke that he suffered in 2015, excuse me, I choked, in 2015. And I've read some articles that state that Ed is confined to a wheelchair now because of it. And But other than that, he seems in fair health. And then... You know, you talk about his parole, and his he's he's seventy three years old. Mm-hmm. He's eligible for all what I believe it's every seven years based off his sentence. Yes. You, you only figure he's got two, one or two more left. Yeah. You know, they, they deny him parole in twenty twenty four. He'll be eighty eighty one mm-hmm. next time it comes around, and the next time he's almost ninety. Yeah. So, I mean, the the expectation I could see that fear in the eighties, nineties, and even early two thousands. Mm-hmm. But at this point, let it happen. He's had, no, no, don't let it happen. Yeah. There's not as much to fear. You don't have the six foot nine menacing monster coming after you. You have a guy that's had a stroke, a wheelchair bound, speech problems, older man, 73 years old, probably not very big anymore, like physically, like weight and size wise. Yeah. In a wheelchair. If he does get paroled, that's horrible. He shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But I don't, you don't have to worry about that guy being released back into, you don't have to worry about 1970s Ed Kemper being back on the streets. Because, mm. I mean, it, it's not fair. Is so there a chance that he might get back and kill, try to kill someone else? Absolutely. He I, should never be out, but he the needs fear to of never him being be out. out should be kind of thrown away. This is one thing I just have to say, and I cannot believe it. But I saw numerous videos when I was researching the case, numerous interviews, like on YouTube and even TikTok. And I went to the comments, as I do sometimes, and just read some. Yeah. I cannot, I lost count. At how many, he's such a nice man. He's so sweet. He needs to be set free. I have seen that. They watch the video. I have seen that. And that's, that's scary guys. We need, (laughs) we need to not think that way. We know what he's done. And that's one reason I was anxious to, to deep dive into 
what he did, especially after Mindhunter, when mm-hmm. so many people are like, oh my God, he's so interesting and stuff. Let's not forget what he did. Yeah, and that's the thing I was going to say about that is these people, are they may not be doing their research. They may be seeing these videos. They may have watched Mindhunters. They may listen to the TikToks or whatever. Refer them to my second episode, well, please. Well, Ed Kemper doesn't, <laughs> in almost everything he does in all these interviews, he doesn't sit there and say, you know, I... I did this to him. Then I removed the head Then I had sex with the body. Then I kept the head. I had sex with the head. I did He doesn't say those things. You know yeah. what I mean? He's like, he's like, yeah, I killed her. I you did know, horrible. Things. I did horrible things yeah. to her. That is when you sit there and say, I did horrible things that can be taken as, you know, maybe I he's remorseful. Her a bunch of times I cut her throat. I did some bad stuff. That is not him detailing what actually happened. And it, and it also is mistaken for remorse and it's not. No. And it's also, they just don't know. The monster that he was. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's like when Bundy, the whole Bundy thing in the seventies, like they're like, oh, but he's so adorable. Da, 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 da. No, he's not. You, you, you <laughs> no, he's not. Stories. You thought he was a handsome man. He's a monster. He, he, he did this. You didn't know he had his little mountain that he took body parts to. You know what I mean? Like Jesus. Yeah. They don't know all that part of the story. Or what gets me is some of them do. I never knew that stuff about like Bundy mm-hmm. until, you know, you and I were really talking about it. I just thought he killed a whole bunch of people. I didn't know he had like a Candy Mountain, like, take him to Candy Mountain, Charlie. Charlie. Like, no, I didn't know he had one of those places. That's so awful. Yeah. and But some of these people still know that about these guys, and they're still groupies, for lack of a better word. Beyond me. Yeah, I don't I know, understand I mean, it. I know that's out there. Maybe that's I just, that I'll never be able. somebody or. Let's get rid of that, guys. <laughs> Let's get There's rid of that. There's some shit that's broken that you just get rid of. There's some shit that's broken that you just can't fix. You don't want to fix. You don't want it around you. You, you don't want need it in to the fix. junkyard. Yep. Absolutely. Just just let that go. But we did it. That's Ed Kemper. We covered Ed Kemper, I think, to a degree in which I'm happy with. Yeah, I was going to say, and you even pulled off a lot on this episode because – you probably could have done an episode on the trial. You probably could have done an episode on Mine Hunters. You probably could have done another like three or four episodes out of this one. But some of which, to your point, some of it's already just... out there, and so much of it's done mm-hmm. that we don't. I'm not gonna. Con- I'm gonna show you the highlights of what isn't yeah, hasn't contrary, been done. Contrary to one listener out of a couple of thousand, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. We try to show you, like you said, the stuff that's not out there, the, the stuff that's hard to find, the crazy stuff. Yes, and the on the basic stuff. Yeah, but we don't need to go over the trial a million times. It's been covered. Yeah, it's, it's been a trial. Covered. Yeah, it's not. A, it's not even that super interesting of a trial. Mm-mm. So we don't need to cover the proceedings. His hissy fits were kind of funny, though. That's about the only thing you want to cover in it because yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. The like man baby, <laughs> big man bitch, big man, and he's six foot nine, three hundred pounds. It's even funnier because this little man baby's crying because a little girl did a slip throat at him. What the? You just killed nine people or eight Calm people. Calm down, Ed. Calm down. What is she gonna do to you? Relax. Calm your tits. Big ass man tits. Calm down over there, Ed. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, guys. Well, we will be back next week. I'm not cursed. I was going to say Lord willing. I'm not even going to say that. I'm not going to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, next week you got one. And I think the week after that is me, isn't it? Yep. So next week I have one for you. And then um, I have a Patrick's truly- coming at us. Fuck, I got a truly... One of the worst human beings ever walked the face of this planet. That's a hint. Okay. I know it because I, I found the book. Well, yeah, there's like four books around here that I have to read and it's, I don't want to read them, but I'm all literally I'm excited. Literally one to look forward to. Cause I don't, a lot of people don't talk about this particular stuff. Don't say that. 
But it, it's not bad. It's just people shy away from it just because it's one of the darkest times in human history. You're giving it all away. I'm not giving anything away. Okay. That's, I can tell you already what it is. And I wasn't even sure which one you were doing. Yeah, but you can tell what may, what it might be, but you don't know who I'm covering. That's oh. the thing. Because there's a lot of people you can cover if it's what you're thinking of. Okay. But it's just, it's it's something different. It's definitely something different. Yeah. Um, And it's just, you know, it sticks to, it's evil pudding. That's why we're doing it. It's one of the most evil human beings that ever lived. They were evil pudding. <laughs> Truly. That's my two cents. Okay, well, I'm going to go enjoy not having to deep dive into Kemper. <laughs> On to the next crazy person. On to the next. <laughs> this fucked up life can we look into next? Exactly. We love you guys so much. And thank you so much for sticking with us in our first series. It didn't go exactly how I planned since, you know, well, it happens. lasted four weeks and not three. Well, but life happens. You, you got families and kids and work and lives. Yep. Yep. They come in the way sometimes. Well, I wanted to give you... The best of me and not give you a rushed episode, which yeah, that's why we did this. That's if why we I did it last week, it would have been rushed. But we love you guys. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you back here same time next week for some more evil pudding. Bye. <laughs>